So here's how I, I want to begin this morning. The language we use tells a story. Okay, I want you to think about the following terms or phrases and the story those words have told in 2020. Flattening the curve. Self-quarantine. Contact tracing. Surgical masks. Social distancing. Travel restrictions. Death rates. School closures. Distance learning. Those words tell a story of how life has been affected, some of us more than others, by the global pandemic that is COVID-19. Let me give you some other language that tells a story. Go Huskers! (laughs) Go Chiefs! Go Bulldogs! Go Cubs, right? Even, even the language, uh, I'm going I'm to use it. Hook em horns tells a story, a, a story of a passion we have for sports, a story of us cheering on specific sports teams and particular players. It tells a story of something we enjoy and how we like to spend our free time. A, a bride or groom on their wedding day, using the language, I do, tells a story. A story of a love that is sparked and significantly grown between two individuals to a point they desire to make a commitment to be committed to love and to serve and to cherish and to sacrifice for one another for the rest of their lives. Conversely, a husband or wife using the language, I'm leaving, or you're leaving, tells a different story. A story of broken promises and hurtful words and destructive actions. Wounds received that are now beyond repair. A story where a commitment to love one another has been replaced by a commitment to love self. Our language telling a story is true for more than those that speak English. I've had this client this past year. I think many of you know my full-time job is working as a physical therapist. I don't work full-time in ministry. And this this client, she has a, a tight shoulder. She's originally from Brazil. And so part of her treatment is this aggressive stretching of that shoulder. And as we stretch, she cries out, Misericordia! Her language tells a story. Misericordia means mercy in Portuguese. She's telling a story that she's, been stra- she's strained and she's been stretched and she's reached the end of what she is able to bear. I hope this does not mean that many of you won't come see me for physical therapy in the future. Language telling a story transcends our type of native tongue, and it transcends time. In summer months at First City Church, we are using the ancient language of the Psalms 
to learn a story of how we are to live as God's people. In the past couple weeks, Kyle Osborne and Pastor Chris preached from what they said were psalms of lament. Psalms where God's people are, tell a story they are grieving. And in their grief, they are crying out to the Lord. This morning we come to another psalm of lament, Psalm 12. And in, in this psalm, words, of, words or phrases referencing speech and forms of speech are frequently encountered. The psalmist is grieving the way language is being used. So in light of that, our big idea this morning will be the lament of language. Now some of you may be wanting to better understand what lament is or how to lament. I'm going to give you a little preview. Next week I'm going to preach on Psalm 13, another psalm of lament. And in playing with language, rather than the big idea, the lament of language, it will be the language of lament. We're going to talk more about what lament is and how to lament as we engage that particular psalm. Psalm. For this morning, let me say this about psalms of lament. They typically have a few key components, like an address, a complaint to God, and a point of reorientation in the midst of chaos, what it looks like to trust in God. You're going to see those three components play out this morning. And so we're going to frame how we engage Psalm 12, the lament of language like this. We're going to talk about a language of loneliness. This is the psalmist's address to God. A language to lament. This is what the psalmist is complaining to God about. And a language worth listening to. This is where the psalmist reorients to what it looks like to trust in God. So if you have a Bible around, open it to Psalm 12. We're going to start with verse 1, a language of loneliness. The psalmist says this, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished among the children of man. So the psalmist begins with this address to God. In addressing God, the language the psalmist uses tells a story. We don't know all the specifics, but the words help God. The godly one is gone. The faithful have vanished. Provide some clues. It seems worship and devotion to the Lord are on the decline. People are leaving the church. People are rejecting God's ways. People are living as though they have no need for God or His deliverance. In such a moment, the psalmist tells a story of great loss. Faithful service has been abandoned. Prayer meetings are vacant. Leaders to lead the church are absent. Fellowship has been broken. I think sometimes as Christians, we like to believe when we follow Christ, we should have this great feeling of connection to others in our culture. 
We should be loved by others. We should be affirmed by others. We should have families where everyone is healthy. Brothers and sisters embracing the faith. Parents who are healthy. Kids growing up to follow Christ. And so rather, rather than experiencing personal loss, we believe we should be experiencing great gain. But Christ's words to his disciples as he sends them out to live on his mission in the gospel of Matthew chapter 10 tell a much different story. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brothers, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. I'm going to be honest. The story Jesus is telling here with his language is not a story I like. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to be opposed. I don't want to be persecuted. I don't want to experience personal, relational loss. I know sometimes Christians think the kind of life Jesus is describing here where there's significant persecution only happens during the end times, the times right before Christ returns. Jesus is not talking about that here. He is describing what a typical disciple of Jesus will experience when declaring his goodness and his gospel to others. So here's the question. In such a moment, when you are rejected and opposed because of your love for Christ. When you feel alone and disillusioned and abandoned, and you will, what story will be told by the language you use? Will it be a cry of loneliness to your God or something else? Will it be a story of anger? In telling this story, you will use words like disgusted, appalled, outraged, and hate. You will abandon being gentle and gracious. In telling this story, you will be prone to criticize and condemn and demonize others. Rather than being quick to listen, and slow to speak. You will be quick to speak and slow to listen. You will demand things be different with your message and with your tone when you feel alone and abandoned. Will the story told by the language you use be a story of anger? Will it be a story of anxiety? In telling this story, your language will be dominated by the question, what if? What if things get worse? What if my kids leave the church? 
What if, my, if I lose my job or my business or my friends because I'm a Christian? What if I'm silenced at school or on social media or in my workplace and I'm not free to share my biblical beliefs and my Christian convictions? As such, you will worry and fret. You will lose sleep at night. You may proclaim the end times must be here because things can't get any worse. When you feel alone and abandoned, will the story told by the language you use be a story of anxiety? Will it be a story of apathy? In telling this story, your language will be dominated by the words and phrases. No big deal. If things are bad, I mean, really, what can you do about it? No worries. Your words will express resignation to long for something better. And your words will deny your pain. I know many of us may may think that must be a better story, a better way to deal with challenge that seems less destructive and dramatic than anxiety or anger, but dismissing God-given desires to be loved and connected and accepted and affirmed is destructive too. When you feel alone and abandoned by others, Will the language you use tell a story of apathy? Will the language you use tell a story of anger or anxiety or apathy? Or like the psalmist, will you use the language of loneliness to cry out to your God? Will you tell him you hurt? Many may think expressing these feelings of loneliness is a form of whining and complaining. But but listen to author and counselor Chip Dodd. Loneliness is the gift that speaks to how much is right with us while also pointing to how much has gone wrong. Crying out to your God with a language of loneliness says you hurt. You hurt because you love others. You hurt because you desire others to follow Christ and glorify Him. Those desires are good and right, yet much around you has gone wrong. Creation is not what it was meant to be. Worship and devotion to the Lord is declining. People are leaving the church. People are rejecting God and His ways. People are proud and arrogant and have no need for a Savior. It is not right. To provide greater detail about what is wrong, what the psalmist is encountering that causes him so much concern, The psalmist describes the language being used. This is the language to lament. Beginning in verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts, those who say, 
with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So the the psalmist identifies the language that leads to feelings of loneliness. This is the psalmist's complaint. The word in verse 2 translated lies. It actually means emptiness, nothingness, vanity. Essentially, the psalmist is saying the words of people can't be trusted. What they say has little to no value. This is the person who, who places his or her hand on the Bible, declaring an oath to tell the truth, and then proceeds to tell lie after lie after lie. Or the person you confide painful details about your life to, And that person says those details will be kept in confidence, but then you find others know. The language used by them means nothing. And a significantly painful aspect is not just the words or language used, but who is voicing the language. These aren't random people. These are individuals you're close to. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor, family, friends, people you go to church with, people in your small group, people you work with, those those closest to you, their speech can't be trusted. The psalmist mentions a, a type of language, flattering, that at face value, it appears to express concern for others, but it's really expressed for personal profit, like, like financial profit. Advertisers are really good at this form of, of flattery. You, you deserve this car. You deserve a trip to Cancun or Alaska or Europe, you know, whatever. You deserve a break today. You know what? That advertiser doesn't know you. They don't, they don't know what you deserve. There's this language they're using to encourage you, but the purpose of that language is their financial profit. In addition to financial profit, flattery can be used for the profit of reputation. Right? Discussing hot-button social issues like climate change, caring for the poor, racial inequality, sexual freedom, gender identity. These can be much less connected to actual concern and much more about posturing and preserving personal reputation. Words can be manipulated for such profit. Let me give you a a Christian version of how language is used to profit personal reputation. I had this friend, uh, she coached women's basketball in the area. And she said one of, the, one of the themes that she encountered was that when players returned from Christmas break, they, they, would, they would come to her and they would use the language, hey coach, after praying about it, God is telling me to stop playing basketball. Now such language can be used to preserve personal reputation. I, you know, this person doesn't have to say, basketball was much harder than I thought, and so I'm choosing something different for myself. 
I, I, I don't have to say, hey, I want to quit. I don't have to say, you know, I made this commitment to the team, but I'm, I'm not going to follow through on that commitment. By saying, God is telling me, and I prayed about it, it's a way for me to preserve personal reputation. The language of vain speech, telling lies to a neighbor, flattering lips, more than a story of words. The psalmist says it tells a story of the heart, a double heart, a person with a double mind and a double life. It's interesting for me to see how those outside the church sometimes pick up on this in the lives of Christians. Someone I'm close with who would identify as a non-Christian has said that one of her biggest issues with Christianity is the way Christians talk. It seems duplicitous. They claim Christ, yet are prone to spread gossip and rumors involving others into business they have no need to be invited into. They, they say they love the church and are committed to it, but they leave when they don't like the music or when they disagree with a piece of counsel. They, they use the name of Jesus to justify their agenda and their wants and their desires. The psalmist is so weary from hearing the language of someone with a double heart to the point the Lord is petitioned to cut off such lips. This language, cut off, it, it could mean asking the Lord literally to stop their speaking. They are saying damaging and destructive things, and so we just want them to be silent. But it may, it may mean being excluded from community. When the language cut off is used in the Old Testament, that is often what it is referring to. In being excluded, the individual who is saying these damaging words would reap the consequences of their actions. Their words have harmed God's people. For God's people to experience healing, the source of harm must be removed. Because the psalmist tells us the language used by this person, it also tells a story humility is lacking. This person is filled with arrogance and pride. Their tongue makes great boasts. The psalmist quotes them saying, with our tongue we will prevail. Who is master over us? So such a person, they don't listen to the words of others. Such a person frames what they say in damaging ways. They, they preach from a personal pulpit. And when they do, they accuse and they condemn. Rather than disagree with particular positions, they make declarations about character. She's mean. He's insensitive. That person is wicked. Rather than dialogue and ask questions, they proclaim judgment. And they proclaim their freedom to talk however and whenever they want. In encountering such language, the psalmist cries out to the Lord in a language of loneliness. 
the psalmist complains to the Lord about a language to lament. This is not how people are supposed to talk. People are not supposed to say one thing and mean another. People are not supposed to use their words. They're not supposed to use the name of God for personal profit. The psalmist is weary. And the psalmist longs to listen to something different. To reorient, the psalmist turns to a language worth listening to. Whereas the psalmist was quoting the language of others, declaring a false lordship, the psalmist transitions to quoting the language of the literal God. Listen to the story his language tells. Psalm 12, verse 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The language of the Lord tells a story of, the, of God seeing the poor, those who have nothing to offer, those who have been taken advantage of, those who have had their dignity and worth stolen from them. It is not right. It is wrong. His language tells a story of hearing the needy, those who express their pain and hurt with groans and grunts and moans and sighs because they do not have the strength to speak with actual words. They are weary, they are weak, they are feeble and fragile. The Lord knows and in response says, I will now arise. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. This morning, I was asking the Lord to, to bring an illustration to mind, to, to, to bring this to us in deeper ways. And here's what came to mind. It's one of the, the few positive memories I have of my father. I was maybe 10 or 12. I don't remember. I had, I had, a, I had a chocolate lab. Some of you may be surprised to know I had a dog. His name was Chad. And, and one day when we had him chained, chained up out in the yard, we, we had him chained up because we lived close to a highway and we didn't have a fenced-in yard. He broke loose. We found him later, his lifeless body, on the highway. And so I, I was grieving. I was experiencing significant loss. I had this dog taken from me. Again, this was just my dog. It was not my dignity. In that moment, my dad wrapped his arms around me, bringing me close, bringing me into the position of safety for which I longed. The language of the Lord tells a story of a people who have been pushed down and persecuted and who have been stripped of dignity and worth being rescued and delivered. Many of us need to hear such language. The psalmist continues in verse 6, 
the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The psalmist tells us the language of the Lord is worth listening to. Too often we don't. We listen to the words and speech of others and we are left feeling empty and void. We are left feeling condemned and accused. We don't know who we are and we don't know whose we are. The language of the Lord gives life. It heals wounds. It revives our soul. It provides protection. It teaches us how to live and how to love and how to grieve and how to care for others. It teaches us how to feel and how to think and how to act. The words of the Lord are worth listening to. Let me give you some this morning. For those believing, you are your own God. You are free to live however you want to live. The words of the Lord tell you you were made for a purpose. You were made in God's image. You were not made to live for your own glory. You were made to live for the glory of another. For those tired and weary of living for self, tired of the ugliness of sin in your life and how enslaved you are to it, the words of the Lord tell you to repent and believe, to reject sin and continual pursuit of false gods, and believe there is freedom found in Christ. For those who feel weighed down and defeated because they have suffered at the hands of others, because they have been abused, neglected, mistreated, the language of the Lord tells you what Satan intended for evil, God uses for good. For those struggling to believe that you are not defined by past sin. It weighs heavy on your heart and you struggle to to recognize you can be forgiven in Christ. The language of the Lord tells you there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And for those struggling to feel alone and rejected, feeling like you don't belong. The language of the Lord tells you, you have been adopted into the family of God. You are not an outcast. You are a son or a daughter, and you are a brother or a sister. The psalmist listens to the language of the Lord and reorients. And in listening to the language of the Lord, something interesting happens as the psalmist concludes. Everything doesn't tie up neat and tidy in a bow at the end of this psalm. Some psalms are like that, but that's not the case with Psalm 12. Let me read verse 7 and 8. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. The psalmist acknowledges life continues to be hard. Everything does not tie up neat and tidy with a bow. 
I imagine your life is like that. Because as you, as you live as a disciple of Christ, you call sin, sin. You uphold what the Bible teaches. And so many reject you. They represent one side where the wicked prowl. Conversely, because you forgive, because you know people are not defined by past sin, many others reject you too. This is another side where the wicked prowl. Living as a disciple, many will criticize and condemn, and you will be abandoned. You will feel alone. When you feel alone, what story will be told by the language you use? It does not need to be an angry story because the Lord sees those who have been plundered and pushed down, that you have been stripped of dignity, and the Lord will arise. It does not need to be an anxious story For in the midst of a creation that is broken and fallen, that can be chaotic and crazy, the Lord is present and the Lord will redeem. It does not need to be an apathetic story. Denying the significance of real challenges and situations and personal loss is wrong crying out to the Lord with expressions of sadness means you long for what is right. You are guarded and you are cared for and you are loved deeply by another forever. And so even when you feel alone, he has not abandoned you. As such, may we cry out to him in our weakness, using a language of loneliness, longing for what is right and acknowledging what is broken. Let's pray.